Hello and welcome back to an early morning episode of DSLR Film New Podcast where Planet Mitch, Mitch from Planet 5D, joins me to discuss all kinds of things. We got some news, we got some lenses, we've got a crazy cinema camera that will set you back all the money. But first, Mitch, what have you been up to? Hey! Thanks for having me on, DJ. I'm from a website called... Yeah, you already said that. I know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's Friday. It's pre-NAB. I've been packing like crazy. You see all my gear in the back? No. Oh, wow. Taking... What are you shooting on at my... NAB this year, Mitch? This, this is my gear this, this holiday season at NAB. Uh, for those of you watching on audio, watching on audio, there's a conundrum. Uh, I'm using my iPhone to shoot, and my wife has my selfie stick, so I can't show you that. But selfie stick. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I I do these great little one minute reports with my iPhone, and uh, all I need is my selfie stick, which was sent to me by somebody, and I probably should know his name, but I don't remember, and I'm I suck. Okay, uh, but NAB is next week. You and I will be there. Devin will be there, and I'm going to clear my throat. <clears> throat> And on my end, I'll be shooting on this guy right here. This is, uh, I'm actually, I've started to fall into the Sony camp. I've got a couple of native lenses. This is the 28 F2 and the 55mm F1.8. I got these at a good price. Thanks, Craigslist, for that one. Uh, so that will be my camera of choice. Also be shooting on the GH4 with a handful of lenses. While Devin's up, we might even do a little bit of audio shootout with some wireless systems. Wanted to check Wi-Fi in what is the most congested area I can think of, NAB floor room. So we'll see how Wi-Fi audio works in a location that is just beat to Does that mean you want me to bring... I'm sorry to interrupt your chit-chat there. Does that mean you want me to bring the the road? The road link? Yeah. You know, that would actually be a good test. I'm bringing the Audio-Technica and the Asden Pro X uh, as Wi-Fi transmitters. I've also got the Ultra Cheap. Uh, These are from Monoprice, I believe. They are the Wireless Receiver Link 600120, which is a fabulous name. Fabulous. Great. It works for me. It's it's wonderful. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) All right. On that note, before we start flailing, I think it's probably... You haven't mentioned the NAB Live blog yet. Oh, one of the greatest things that's happening at NAB this year is the ability to follow it in one place from many, many bloggers. Mitch, tell us more about the NAB Live blog. The NAB Live blog is one great place to follow it from many live bloggers. Oh, wait, you just said that. It's just, it's if you watched a stream of the announcements at an Apple thing, like on Macromers or any of those sites, they all have their own individual live blog and what we're doing, and, and it's going to be a rotten day. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we're doing a bunch of people working together instead of a whole bunch of little silos of websites doing their own thing. So tune in to the DSLR Film Noob website because you will find in the menus an NAB link and that's where you'll find the NAB live blog. Absolutely. Check at the top of the tab there and you will see this right here at the top when this site eventually loads. It says NAB live coverage right there. There we go. And so if you click on that you will find uh, everything you need to know. You can also find this on many other sites. Mitch is sharing this across the internet. It is a great way to keep up with it and actually the way that I keep up with the things that I want to see at NAB. That's, uh, that should be your catch line, actually. The things you want to see at NAB. There you go, Mitch. Oh, what a rhymer. I'm just going to go. I'm gonna give that one to you for free. On that note, oh, <laughs> I think hey. it's probably time for I'm the news. All right, first up, let's talk about lenses. Uh, Zeiss has been creating these new fancy 
Bates lenses. They are huge. They are monstrous. They do not have depth of field indication. Instead, they have a digital screen that tells you the information instead. Uh, they've hit 85 as a focal length as well as a few others. And now they'll be hitting 18 millimeter F2.8 with this Sony mount lens. Now, these lenses have had some issues in the past. Uh, firmware updates have been needed. I believe the 85 had some unresponsive issues and some failures. I wonder... Mitch, do you think adding electronics like this to a camera lens is a good and practical idea, or are the old-fashioned penciled-on markers the best way to go? <laughs> well, DJ, the thing I think we should talk about first is that you should give your vast knowledge and explain to people what you mean by fly-by-wire, because I bet you most people don't understand the difference in those lenses. So these Zeiss lenses are autofocus as opposed to the more traditional Zeiss manual focus lenses, which means that they have this ring right here. And if you are listening instead of watching, this is a smooth rubberized ring across the camera or lens body. And that drives a indicator that detects the position of that ring and then tells the motor to step in whatever direction you turn it. Uh, because of that, you're not using gears that are directly linked to the focus driving system, which means that you do not get that beautiful, smooth transition in focus for filmmakers. Instead, this is probably a little bit better for either a fixed focal distance or for photography. Mitch, do you think that about covers it? Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's awesome. And does that also mean it doesn't have the uh, infinity stops? Like, uh, I mean... You know, I don't want to say that's a farce, but uh, focusing to infinity on many of these lenses does not give you all the focus as commonly claimed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, <laughs> that's one of those things that you always hear people say, well, you know, I just set it to infinity and shot. And yeah, I mean, you get a lot of stuff in focus, but infinity makes you feel like you're getting infinite focus, everything no matter what, we'll be in focus, but that is a farce. That is, there's no infinity. There's just a lot of focus or not a lot of focus. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, at least on, on the lenses I've used, I mean, you, you can't just necessarily shove it all the way at the end and be totally happy, right? Because I mean, it, 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 you kind of have to take it back just a notch from yep. the end because that's it just looks wrong and it doesn't focus on what you think it's focusing on so anyway that's a very hot button issue with uh photographers and filmmakers like you'll see people complaining about how adding a flange adapter to their camera their mirrorless body will remove the ability to have infinite focus and i would argue that the ability was never there to begin with and <laughs> you are fighting over very little changes in that however I am not here to argue that because many people will debate and be very heated about that. On the other note, this Zeiss lens will set you back about, looking at the price, $1,500. Uh, this is a very wide angle, and it is a native Sony lens mount. So that is great for uh, full-frame EF or FE. Man, FE and EF are so close together that Sony and Canon trip me up. But... The lens is expensive. It's nice. It's a new design style that we haven't seen from other manufacturers. All of the lenses that are stamped with Zeiss are very, very expensive. Now, back to the electronics in the lens. Mitch, what do you think about this LCD display telling you the information that you that would is, otherwise get off the camera body? Huh? That is so sexy. Uh, it's incredible. Zeiss is really setting a bleeding edge. And who needs it? Do you think uh, it's another thing that's just going to fail inside the lens? I mean, we've already had issues with the 85 millimeter Zeiss lens uh, that has the same feature. It's it, to me personally, I think it's another way to easily and quickly make your lens obsolete. I I don't know. Obviously, Zeiss is 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 a fabulous manufacturer they put out high quality stuff 
yes, it's a point of failure, but I suspect that their quality standards will typically mean that it's not going to fail. I'm nervous when I see this. Oh, sorry, Mitch. Didn't mean to cut you off, but imagine, imagine for a moment how great in the nineties digital watches were. (laughs) And now imagine us 10 years in the future, looking at this futuristic lens and thinking, ah, look at that thing. You know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I feel like the more traditional style of lens will always be the lens that people like, the one that has a regular focus ring, the one that has the regular styling, the one that has the regular written indication. Uh, This does look cool, but how long does something so stylized stay in style? It's not retro. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the, the one thing that is probably good if, if you need it, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I should, I was going to say amateurs might like it, but it's not necessarily $1,500. No. Yeah. The fact that it is, is trying to show you what the focus range is, you know, cause in the sample that's there, it says, uh, you know, 0.03 feet plus or minus, right. From what's in focus. So, I mean, if if you're if it's combining the current aperture with a focus distance, and and I I see you <laughs> quickly pulling out a, an old fashioned lens that has markings on it <laughs> that will give you that kind of information. <laughs> um, <laughs> it it you know yeah I, okay. I was trying to help them out. Okay, I, I was trying to help them out. All right, speaking of help, helping themselves out, let's talk about a camera company that we were just worried about failing uh, episode ago or less. Lytro has kind of hit us off guard. We knew about the L16 that they've kind of talked about over the last uh, year and a half, two years, but this is incredible. Look at this crazy camera from Lytro. This is the Lytro Cinema camera. You can't buy it, but you can rent it for 125000 Dollars has 16 stops of dynamic range, depth screening, camera tracking, post depth of field controls, and more. And it is a monster. Quoting Stu from Prolos, this is a six foot long behemoth and an image plane of about a foot and a half or a half of a meter. This is huge. It's capable of 755 raw megapixels and up to 300 frames per second. If you're not familiar with the depth screening, because Lytro camera imaging sensors use the light from different refraction angles, they can actually capture sections of light at various depths of field. And with that capability, they can actually screen out any item in a scene based on its depth and position in the scene, which eliminates the need for green screen. Now, Mitch, this camera is crazy. This camera is huge. It's very costly, but what do you think about it? This looks really, I just want to say it badass to me. (laughs) Uh, Badass is right. And I certainly encourage uh, everyone to go watch the demo video because it, it's kind of hard to explain. And it's not just in this situation, a camera, uh, because in the demos they show an entire massive rack of hard drives and computers and stuff. Because in order to take the data that's coming off of this camera, you got to have massive processing on the back end. It's not like you're going to bring your little MacBook Pro or your little Windows 10 point and shoot laptop and process this stuff. You got to have a monster back end to handle all of this. Data. I mean, you're talking about 755 megapixels of data coming off of this. Now, per, and that's, that's per frame. Is, is it right? like I know there was yeah. a, a trick with Lytro where they would give you this crazy megapixel number, but if right. I remember correctly, that number is actually much much smaller because it's based on each individual depth of field layer added together to give you the full megapixel count. Is that correct? 
I we don't know much about the details, but in in if you think about what they're doing, and they show in one of the demos, there's a, a they're playing pool, right? There's a pool table, and there's um, pool there's billiard balls on the table. There's a woman that's playing, and they have the ability to take that entire pool table and all of the billiard balls and the woman and extract her from the background or extract the woman and some of the balls, you know, so everything's like an object. I mean, it, it virtually is turning everything into an object. And in order to do that, you got to have a lot of data, right? It's, oh, so yeah. it's, it's, so what you're converting it to in the back end, you know, you may end up with a, a, a physical image that is 4k or, you know, 1080, that's not going to have a whole lot of pixels, right? But in order to capture all of that data and their light field and be able to extract people and put them into a totally different scene or to move the balls, because there's part of the scene where they actually move all the balls in a circle and then have them go into the pockets. I don't know. Did you see that part? I did. Uh, was that done in camera or was that? Uh, I... It was done with the data that was gathered. Okay. Uh, because I was so confused when I saw that demonstration. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I mean, you know, that, is that CGI that they're showing here? Or did they just move a bunch so, of balls around on the table and take some stills? Well, I think what's happened is that they have captured those balls physically on the table. And once you do that, then you can move them around in post-production with their big old monster server and everything that goes with it. Wow. So again, it's $125,000 to starting and and I you know they say depending upon how long you need it it's going to cost you a lot more, so this is obviously for major Hollywood productions, but maybe that's a situation where you can save a boatload of say CGI processing on the back end, because uh, I mean you you go watch any of these uh, behind the scenes now and you know everything's green screen and you got actors in Hollywood and then they suddenly slap on, you know. Iceland in the background. Well, there's a heck of a lot of cost that goes into the CGI aspects of that. And if you can read, if you can save fractions of money on that end just by renting a camera and all this gear, uh, it really could literally change the way Hollywood makes movies. Well, the other thing about the green screen that's uh, really interesting is if you've ever had to shoot someone in front of a green screen, it's really hard to get a good performance out of the person. I'm not saying it's impossible. You can you can still do it. It's done many, many times across uh, the film industry. But because they don't have anything to really set the mood or interact with specifically, they just have this blank screen. You kind of have to talk them through what you think they're supposed to be seeing and what they're supposed to be experiencing in order to get a performance out of them. But with this Lytro camera, you could literally put them into an area where they have something to react to that's you know similar or within range of the scene that they were supposed to be in. And that real-life performance comes out a lot cleaner and a, a lot better when you have someone in the environment uh, as opposed to out of the environment and still having the ability to green screen some elements. The other thing that's really interesting about this is the tracking portion of it. The camera is huge, so obviously you're going to need some kind of motion control system to move it around or at least some dollies and so on. But the camera uses tracking information for all of the points on the screen, which means in a post-production workflow, you can gather that tracking information for you know moving motion text. Uh, the billiard balls, interestingly, now that you mentioned, Mitch, that those were filmed and then moved around, I understand what they were doing. They used the tracking information for the billiard balls in order to uh, right. capture them and move them. I mean, those are things that would otherwise take uh, quite a bit of time in post-production to deal with. And this camera seems to allow for some of that to be streamlined. I wonder, though, how they're going to move this into a normal timeline. Because <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, you almost have to decide what you want in their giant server farm or quote unquote in the cloud and then streamline that out uh, to your production workflow. Uh, I can't imagine there's a way to work with all of that data in a current. Uh, you know, Premiere Pro or uh, Avid or, uh, you know, any of the other editing suites that people are used to using. So 
Yeah. I don't know, well, Mitch. I, what I, do you think? Is that is this gonna have? Do they? You think they'll bake in some kind of ready to roll thing that will make this easy to ingest? I that's a damn good question because none of the material that I saw and I I didn't. You read the article from Stuart Prolost. I don't know if he mentioned anything. Um, I didn't see it. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that says we got you covered. And they right. draw some squares and some squiggly lines and say, here's your workflow, and we integrate seamlessly. But you know, integration seamlessly is usually uh, – it's not as easy as just uh, – I drew a box here, and then I put a line on it, and it goes over to your editor, and you're ready to roll. No, nah, there's, there's more stuff to it than that. Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, yet to be seen, but – so uh, it, it's fascinating, and it, it came out of nowhere, obviously. You and I were both surprised when we saw this. It was like, holy cow. But Now, last question before um, we move on, Mitch. If yeah. they created a consumer version of this that you could actually buy as opposed to a, a subscription model, which is interesting that large cameras like this are moving to a subscription model, but that's a whole other thing. Do you think a <laughs> consumer version of this would be something that people would want to buy? And if so... How do you think they would handle the processing to capture something like that? Well, I I don't think that this is a concept that translates to consumer stuff within the next five or ten years. I mean, realistically, they've got to. I mean, it's 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 one of those things where they've got to spend charge the big bucks in order to use or develop the system, fine tune it, make it work the way they want. Um, I just don't, I just don't see it coming down in price anytime soon. I mean, you say consumer, you're, you're starting at $125,000 rental. I mean, that would, that would imply that the cost is at least three to five times that. Uh, because rentals typically like to charge about thirty percent of the rental or about of the cost, so you're talking about half a million dollars maybe for all of the product together if you were to buy it outright. So I don't, it's I don't see this coming to consumers anytime soon. No. The thought for me was actually the ramping of technology in the GPU sector and the CPU sector that may, in as you said, in the next five, and I, I think I wrote that in the show notes, maybe five or, five or so years, we see yeah. enough processing in a desktop to handle something like this or possibly another method of this sort of capture. I, I don't know. I like the thought of having some tool like this in my collection, but unfortunately, at uh, 125000 this is well over my budget and probably not something I will get to play around with anytime in the near future. Moving on to yeah. other things I will not play with, let's talk about <laughs> this Canon announcement, the compact servo 18 to 80 millimeter zoom lens. This is $5,500. It's a T4.4 lens. It's EFS, although for some reason, all the literature on this lens dances around the fact that this is not full frame, that it is in fact EFS. I'm not sure why that is the case. Uh, but it's uh, it looks like it's port- sort of aimed towards the C100 through C500 line of cameras. Uh, it does mention in Canon's literature that it supports the uh, Pixel AF uh, imaging, autofocus, all the things. I don't know how that matters in a lens. I, I don't understand Canon's advertising for this, but Mitch, what do you know about this lens? Uh, are you excited at all? Because other than news shooters and sports shooters, I don't have a lot of excitement in my heart for this guy. Um, I unfortunately did not spend a lot of time studying this yet. Uh, there's been there's been several things. I mean, Canon actually just sent out a press release, an email yesterday with this information, with five different press releases in the email, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what 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 what? Um, and so it's kind of hard to dive into all that, still be preparing for NAP. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, but one of the things that, that 
again, I, I do think this is a niche lens. It's not for everybody. Uh, I, I wasn't even paying attention and noticed that it was an EFS uh, mount. So that's, that's kind of interesting in itself. Well, okay. So that's what I, I really caught me off guard. Here is one of the press releases that Canon sent out. As you can see, it's massive. There's a lot to read in here. And if you scan through here, you'll start to see EF a lot, EF mount, EF mount. And then, you know, slipped in. This is a complete compatible EF mount Super 35. You know, as soon as you see the word Super 35, you know what's going on. But for some reason, they don't tell you this is a, not a full frame lens throughout this entire uh, press release. They just dance around it. Uh, if you're not familiar with server or servo rocking lenses, basically this lens has the added ability to have this attachment here, which runs the gears and allows you to uh, focus in and out. It's a really handy thing if you are trying to zoom in and zoom out in a studio environment or in a news environment. It is, as Mitch said, a very niche market. And I, again, want to complain about press releases in general. These people need to summarize the freaking information, give me exact facts about the items, and don't make me read several paragraphs to figure out what frame size this, or, you know, what imaging sensor size this freaking lens can handle. At $5,500, uh, this is not aimed towards the consumer market. It probably isn't even aimed towards many filmmakers, depending on the film section you work in. Uh, it looks nice. It's got a rocker. I mean, what else can you say about this, Mitch? I noticed you left some little nugget in the show notes. Well, again, like you, I, and I love your jab at uh, press releases because – you and I have talked about several recently that are just kind of like huh? a mess. Uh, I don't quite get it. Um, the the uh, and I'm going to talk to several PR people at at uh, NAB next week, and I'm like, will you guys clean this stuff up? I mean, I know this may make sense to you, but come on, let's speak <laughs> in non. So here's the sentence. 4K ready and features autofocus and optical image stabilization with compatible camera models only. Hmm. Now, when has when do you know? And you're the you're the lens guy. When has optical image stabilization only been dependent on the camera model? I mean, isn't isn't it in the damn lens or not? I mean, am I that? far out of touch that I haven't seen uh, an optical stabilization lens, an IS lens that doesn't work with a certain body. I'm bringing up the pictures here, Mitch, because usually you see, and here it looks like there there we go. And these are all courtesy at canonrumors.com, by the way, folks. Uh, if you look right here on the side, uh, down here at the very bottom, it does have an image stabilization switch, which to me says that it has Canon's traditional uh, spinning, rotating mechanism inside of the lens itself to stabilize. Now, maybe they're referring to a power requirement for this particular lens because you're not only running an AF mount, but you're also, or you're, excuse me, you're not only running the image stabilization mount, but you're also running that servo controller and that may all be coming from power derived from the lens mount itself, which maybe the C100 through C500 are more capable of that. Or the more conspiratorial way of thinking about this <laughs> is that Canon is going to do some sort of in-camera image stabilization that works in conjunction with their lens. Now, I don't think that's actually true. Uh, Canon yeah. is by far the least uh, um, progressive <laughs> image stabilization company, and they've always traditionally given us pretty much the same image stabilization. But throwing it out there, what do you think, Mitch? Would you, would you be happy if Canon added in-camera image stabilization? Well, well no, duh. Uh, yeah, I think we all would. Uh, is it going to happen anytime soon? No. Uh, yeah. No, not happening. Because they love to charge extra for IS inside their lenses. But I, I guess I'm, 
and and maybe there are certain situations that I I just don't know every camera model and everything that Canon's ever done, but this sentence just confused kajibers out of me. Image stabilization with compatible cameras only, but then they don't list them. They don't they don't give you any information. So I don't know. I, to be determined. We'll learn, we'll ask that question at any meeting. I may have something to do with the Pixel AF that they're using as well. Uh, maybe they're mm-hmm. doing some sort of uh, image square type of digital stabilization, warp stabilization style on the body. No, that doesn't make any sense either. Oh, never mind. Just no. scratch that off the list. What the heck? <laughs> I've never said anything about that anywhere. So no. <laughs> it's way too early in the morning. I will say, yeah, though, I- in-body image stabilization... Uh, as you guys know, I have an A7S Mark II that I've been shooting on quite extensively. I stopped renting and started purchasing. The 5-axis image stabilization on this does allow for very decent handheld shooting without any other stabilization. Uh, you do still have to use the same precautions, but where I would normally walk extremely slow or barely move at all when I was handheld shooting. Now, with this, I can keep it even further away from my body and get smooth, very stable pans and motion out of this body with the inbuilt 5-axis image stabilization. So, you know, it's becoming a feature that I want to see in every single camera that I buy in the future. And hopefully, Panasonic will be showing that off in the GH5. That is not in the show notes, but it is something that (laughs) I want. So hopefully they will add that. And we've seen it in some of their their smaller cameras, their newer lineup, and the GH5. I pretty much, I want to guarantee that we'll see a, a GH5 announcement sometime this year, if not at NAB. Now, moving on to other new announcements, let's talk about smartphones we occasionally bring up smartphones because they are the thing that we all carry and more and more we are seeing these smartphones offered with internal 4k shooting uh, or even image stabilization in camera which is very interesting meet the htc 10 and the reason i threw this in the show notes is actually because i am an htc user this is the M8 that I use quite regularly. It takes great stills images. And now HTC has kind of upped their game in the camera department by adding a nice and small 12-megapixel camera with an f1.8 lens on this HTC 10. Uh, the specs are pretty good. It looks like pretty much anything you'd see out of the, the rest of the smartphone market in the top-end range. But Mitch, what I wanted to ask you is 4K the new token feature for every single device that has video capability? Uh, Yes. (laughs) And the the question is, when the hell does anybody use it? I don't know. I mean, this only is capable of shooting about six minutes of 4K footage, and the file size is large enough that with the device's uh, limited 32 gigs of memory, uh, you're going to eat that up very, very fast. It does support an, a micro SD card, which you know could expand your ability to record. But it's, it's kind of weird. I, and I don't know. I, do you see people going around filming a bunch of stuff? And I say that after you just mentioned that you were going to cover NAP with your iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh... It's interesting. I mean, we all know that 4K is "quote unquote" coming. Um, it would be nice to have more and more things in 4K, and you know, we go round and round. Let me just tell you, as a as a sidebar, for example, um, I I think I've mentioned that I've been shooting some photos for a drumline group called Gateway Indoor. Okay. The final is going on this weekend and i can't go to dayton because of nab which is so anyway long story short they're they're doing a paid stream so you can watch all of the drumline performances online for four days for a hundred bucks so i i signed up and it was a bit of a stretch in terms of paying for it so i i get on and lo and behold 
they're only streaming in 720. What? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, what? I just paid $100 to watch this online stream and it's only in 720? Where's the hour? Where, what? I mean, everybody's talking 4K. So I jumped on the, they had a little pop up online support thing and I said, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm only getting 720 HD out of this. And, and, well, we're considering doing 1080 next year if, if there's enough demand for it. Huh? Wow. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow. So, you know, we can, it, it's, it's just one example, and it's not a perfect example, but we keep talking about 4K, 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 and we still aren't even at 1080 in some situations. So that's a real sidebar, but I... I I love everything is 4K to answer your question. To have the ability if I need it, that's great. But due to size requirements and and, and if we had H.265 maybe with higher compression yeah. but still great quality, then maybe it would make more sense. But nobody's there yet except for Cine Martin that I know of. There's a plug. Um, so... I don't know. It's great that 4K's in there. Thanks. The things that they shove 4K into these days, though, you look at the actual resolution and the sharpness and everything else that you get out of the 4K image, and it's not that impressive. <coughs> Downscale to 1080p, it looks okay, but, I mean, really, it's not as good as you think it should be for 4K image. Let me give you another sidebar. Um, yesterday, I was watching I Justine. Do you know I Justine? No. Oh, gosh, shocking. You don't know who I Justine is. Anyway, it was one of the years ago she started out as an Apple freak, and um, she was doing the live. I, you're smiling, I know. The, because the I live, would know Mac history. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but you, do you remember when there were uh, there was a group of people that were, like, live streaming their lives? They had a camera that they would put on their head, and they would just live stream everything oh yeah i just one of those people right so long story short she uploaded in a, a one of her first 360 vr videos the other day that she recorded uh and that's a whole nother topic that we're going to get into of course at nab is because i think vr is going to be a big deal virtual reality for those of you who don't know what vr is uh but this getting to my point <laughs> There were comments. It was shot in 4K, 360 degrees, right? Touted as 4K. And everybody, you go look in the comments on her video, and she's and everybody's like, it looks blurry. You said it was 4K. Uh, why is it so blurry? And, of course, there are some comments. Well, okay. So picture 4K, but it's 360 degrees, right? So... <laughs> Not if if you're looking at one small segment of that, that's not going to be 4K, right? No, that's a put heck on, of a crop. That's going to be like 480. Yeah, put, put on your intelligence hats, people. If 4K is the entire image, or maybe 180 of it, maybe it's half, maybe two cameras, or but even so, yeah, it's going to be blurry. So people are expecting this really high density, pics, uh, you know, high resolution image everywhere they look come on that you need a litro camera for that <laughs> anyway sad sidebar sidebar but people are starting to expect if 4k is 4k then it ought to be really high resolution and everything will be super sharp i think the problem is people are spoiled they roll into a best buy or electronic store of unnamed varieties and find these 4k panels showing these beautiful nature shots that were shot at yeah. 60 FPS and, you know, you can see every single nook and cranny crystal clear. And then on top of that, they've thrown some voodoo on there to add image sharpness and a bunch of other things. And so they think, well, okay, if I buy 4K, everything's going to look like that. Or if I shoot yeah. in 4K, everything's going to look like that. But then you roll out to the store and you buy a consumer grade, you know, $500, $400 4K camera and you expect to, well, 
you know, I'm shooting in 4K. When this image comes out, it's going to be sharp as that TV I just saw at Best Buy. And you get it, and you're like, well, wait a minute. This is a little bit iffy. Well, your cell phone has a lens on it. How good of a lens do you think they can freaking fit into something the size of a dime? It's not that phenomenal. You can't get that good a glass into that small of a section. And it's just how it works. On top of that, the image sensor is very small. The pixel sites are very, very small because that's a lot of resolution to pull out of a tiny, tiny sensor. So you don't get that crisp, clear look. Sure, you know, you scale down to 1080p and it starts looking really good. And at 4K, it's not bad. But not bad is not the same as what you see on these professionally shot 4K images that you're getting out of these televisions. So don't fool yourself with the label of 4K. Just enjoy what you shoot and hope that at some point that cool, awesome, sharp thing will trickle down to devices like your smartphone. Is it possible? Yes, it is. Will we see it in the next year or so? You know, go watch videos shot on the Samsung Galaxy S series of phones, and you will see that the 4K images are not as sharp, as crystal clear as many of the other 4K huh? images coming really? out there. Huh? Huh? I mean, uh-huh. I'll say that multiple times. I'm shocked. Yes. It's. Uh, it is 4K, guys, and I'm not disputing that. Same with a GoPro. You know, you, you can shoot in 4K on a GoPro, uh, but if you put 4K image from a GoPro next to 4K image from a wide-angle lens on a GH4, there will be significant differences in the quality. And if you put the GH4 next to a 4K camera like the Sony uh, FS5, it's, you're not going no. to... You know, it's it's there's steps and tears. That's just how it happens, you know? There's no way around it. And I mean, uh, shooting raw versus shooting in a Kodak, yeah, there are losses. You lose things. I oh, and my the reason that this rant came up is uh, my my nephew uh, came up to the other day and he's like, "Well, I'm going to be a filmmaker." I was like, "Okay, well, that's good. You know, like be prepared to starve for a while, and if you get really lucky, you'll make some money." And then uh, he says, "Well, I've got this because." I can shoot 4K. Look, it says 4K right here, and he's he's got like a, a Sony point-and-shoot camera, uh, you know, a little handheld video camera, and it's like, well, yes. And he's like, well, everything's 4K, and this is going to be great. And I'm like, okay, man, you know, let me show you some different demonstrations and like what a lens does on a camera body. And then he's like, well, I can't afford that. Well, <laughs> 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 ah! I, I don't, don't worry about the worry about the plot for now, kid. And yes. eventually, you can concern yourself with the resolution. And to the, yeah. and it's been a month or two since this conversation uh, came up, and he um, he still hasn't shot anything. So I'm not <laughs> really. I don't want him to worry about you know 4K. I want him to worry about content first, and then you can worry about 4K. All right, that was way off the rails. Uh, Do not discourage your nephews and nieces from becoming filmmakers just because you're a jerk. Um, Well, but but you did the right thing. You said worry about story first. Yes, absolutely. Figure out the story, tell a good story, and then worry about later on. I mean, that's where all the good filmmakers start, right? Yeah, um, actually, if you are out there trying to write something, uh, there's a somewhat controversial book, but it's uh, also very good if you're struggling with your first screenplay or whatnot to get your content started. Uh, It's called Save the Cat. Uh, That is a very good... Uh, basically, it puts up goalposts on either side for you to write an entire script from start to finish. And uh, it's very popular with people who are just starting out because it gives them a sort of skeleton frame to make decent content. Now, don't ever get yourself stuck into just writing with that particular style in mind. You can always go outside the box, do interesting things, and have adventures. But a lot of times, if you've never done it before, having a frame to hang your story on will make life a lot easier. I got a quick question for you. Do you know the answer to this one? What was uh, Steven Spielberg's first movie? Oh, man. It wasn't. I don't know. I, I, I do not know. Ah, 
It wasn't E.T. Uh, I mean, it's way back before E.T. No. And, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's so funny how the human brain works because while you were talking about that uh, story, I was like, oh, I'm going to – I'm. it's called Duel. I couldn't come up with the name of the movie until just now. It was a story about a guy in a car and a, a, a semi-truck driver. And the semi-truck driver was trying to drive um, – I can't come up with his name either. Dennis McLeod from that old TV show. Anyway, that movie, <laughs> I, saw it, I saw it on TV and I loved it. It would, it had tension. It had uh, suspense. It was, it was an awesome movie. And then I later learned that it was Steven Spielberg's first movie, but I remembered it because it was an awesome story. And that's what launched Spielberg was that, that movie uh, launched his career because everybody saw it on TV. And I mean, he, it was made for like a hundred thousand dollars. It was a cheap movie. I'm trying anyway. to find it on his IMDb page. And it's uh, what did you call it? You said it was called tool. Duel. Duel. Oh, duel. Okay. Duel. Hmm. As in a car and a truck battling each other. It's a great movie. Uh, Huh. I didn't get totally distracted, but yeah, now I'm like uh, I'm searching through Steven Spielberg's entire IMDb page, and I'm trying to find what you're talking about. I I remember some car stuff, but for some reason, like uh, the car that the evil car, uh, man, it's like yeah, this is uh, I'm I'm failing at this. So let's move on before we <laughs> dive too deep into films. Okay, uh, whoop, that's the IMDb page. Let's bring up this last news article before we get out of here. Uh, I'm going to try and move through this uh, as kindly as possible because I am not a EVF guy. Zakudo has announced the Gradical, am I saying that right, Mitch? Yeah. Gradical yeah. I, which is basically one of the smallest most uh, high resolution for its size EVFs available. It'll set you back about $1,950. And the key thing here is it's light, it's tiny, and it has a 720p imaging range internally. It is very attractive in size and form factor, but $1,950 and you have to put it up against your eye. I dislike things being shoved in my eye. Mitch, tell me more about this thing because you seem kind of excited about it. Well, it's not something that I'm going to buy, first of all. Uh, Like you, I typically don't need this kind of thing. But for somebody who does, so somebody who is used to having uh, their camera up near their face where they're shoving their eye in a viewfinder, uh, a movie camera, a film camera, as opposed to a DSLR, because uh, this is not compatible with a DSLR in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's 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 an awesome. I I saw the Gradical HD last year at NAB. The image is astounding. It's gorgeous image if you're looking for an electronic viewfinder. And Red has their own viewfinder. If you're looking at theirs, and I believe it's like. $3,500, and it only works with RED. One of the nice things about the Zacuto is that it works with multiple cameras. If you want to put it on Sony, you want to put it on a, a RED, you can put it on just about any camera that supports uh, the uh, mailing list. Uh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking at the the uh, Zacuto page, and I was waiting for the mail list to go away before I showed the screen. Uh, but so... So it's it's an amazing device. It doesn't have a battery, which means you've got to use a tap or you know another a battery source. So there's cables coming in, and it's SDI in only. It doesn't have a bunch of output stuff, uh, like some of the other uh, eyepieces. But one of the things that I really wanted to talk about uh, is is a comment. I was reading the article over in Cinema 5D because they actually got their hands on it. I obviously have not had my hands on one yet. Uh, but Steve Weiss piped in, who is the co-CEO, or I don't know exactly. He's co-founder of Zacuto. And some of the people in the comments section were going, $1,900 for EVF? That's ridiculous. You know how people typically will 
bash the hell out of somebody. And it, one guy even said, well, there's probably only $300 worth of material in there. So it maybe should cost $500 tops. And Steve Weiss chimed in and I, and it's, and it's important to me uh, because I, I, you, and you and I talk about this at times about setting expectations. Uh, do you remember you and I are both, older we're not some of these young people. Most, <laughs> no spring chicken anymore people, mitch yeah most of these young people won't remember did you remember boeing got slammed for uh it was mcdonnell douglas at the time a million dollar toilet that was that was charged to the government oh yeah a that was going on an airplane yeah that was that was a huge deal uh, along with uh they were starting to like look at the cost of tool uh, certain specialty tools and right. things like that that NASA was was using the million dollar hammer, I think, was another one that fit in the toilet category. Yeah. And and the point was, and because I'm I'm on the side of the manufacturer in that particular situation. Now it's it's the stupidity of the government in the first place, right? But in those situations, they were asking for a highly specialized one or two item manufacturer right so they were going to build one or two of these toilets or hammers or whatever because it needed to go like on a space shuttle or or whatever very specialized and what does that take it takes research and development it takes specialized manufacturing uh engineering out the wazoo so all of these things add up in terms of cost and and steve wise pointed out and i'd like to read part of this if it's okay with you yeah go for it R&D is one huge aspect and incredibly expensive when you consider all that we needed five different engineering firms to make this mechanical, electrical, optical, software, and assembly. You cannot find one company with a specific knowledge of creating this as, as you know, without getting five different companies involved. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, R&D comes out to be about 25% of the price. Now, most people never ever consider that now also consider the fact that the this is a, a specialized piece i mean how many of zakuto are going to sell right uh people do teardowns of apple iphone for example and they they can figure out exactly how much each individual price part costs and say well you know this is what it will cost apple to make but apple's doing it on you know hundreds of millions of units so they can get the prices down on each one of those things. When you're in a manufacturing company where maybe you're going to sell, maybe they're, I don't know, maybe they'll sell a thousand of these tops. You know, all of these other costs go into it. And I love the fact at the end of, of Steve's comment, I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but uh, they're going to, the Chinese knockoffs can't do the kind of things that the Sakudo people have put together in this. And that, of course, the Chinese knockoffs and the, the Asian companies will try to knock this off. But what they then do is take all of the R&D out of it. They don't have that research and development cost. They just go manufacture something that's an identical clone. Yep. So, of course, they can cut the prices by at least 20% because it's going to cost them a little bit to figure out how they made it, right? Yeah, but especially in this case, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, but he even mentions that they have a rejection rate of fifty percent on the OLED displays on these. So there's a whole lot of things that go into this, and I'm going on a little bit of a rant. But <laughs> people can't expect to get something like this for five hundred bucks. It's just not feasible. It doesn't make any sense. And guess what? Zakudo has to make some profit on top of all that. Yep. So yes, it's nineteen hundred dollars. But let's say they're selling it through B and H. Well, B and H has to get some profit, right? So there's, you know, you guys ought to watch uh, Shark Tank because the sharks only get excited on products that have fifty percent margins or more. I mean, you know. So anyway, I'm going on a bit of a rant. Well, no, you're absolutely right, Mitch. I mean, think about the tooling just for the injection molding that happens with this to generate a, uh, a mold for a injection mold on any type of plastic bit or any type of rubberized bit alone, you're talking like a five to $10,000 investment for the molds themselves before you inject them. So 
that's the eyepiece that covers, you know, just one portion of this. Now we have the metal that goes around the outside. Well, is this machined? Is this cast? How is it done? And if it's cast, you have to have a frame made up. You have to have sand cast made up. If it's uh, machined, you have to have a toolpath generated. You have to have uh, tons of design going into all the bits. You have to have several generations of prototypes to be able to fit the PCBs in there for the OLED screens. Most of the OLED screens are tied up with cell phone manufacturers. And because of that, lower resolution OLEDs are hard to come by. That's why we're stuck in this continual generation of lower resolution uh, monitors for filmmakers is because people can't get their hands on these quad HD screens that are going into cell phones because they're all used up. They're all going into cell phones. So then they have to make contracts with second and third tier companies to provide these screens for these particular applications. And then on top of that, you know, you're dealing with people that are basically ramping up old stuff that they haven't used in a while and using extra factory space, but they're going to charge you an arm and a leg because guess what? You're only going to use a couple hundred freaking screens out of the entire batch. Whereas the cell phones will use millions of screens the production costs are completely different it's a completely different range and if you've ever had to produce massive amounts of dvds or blu-rays that is a great way to think about how much things cost if you buy a hundred blu-rays to sell or to give away or distribute to reviewers you're looking at a cost of somewhere in the range of seven to ten dollars a disc but if you can manage to print 10,000 of those same discs, now your costs go down to a dollar or two dollars a disc. You have cut that down to where your profit margin goes from zero to you now you can sell the disc for ten dollars and make eight or nine dollars per disc. That is a huge difference in the value. And with Zacuto, who I often groan about because their stuff is expensive. They make quality product, but they also have to make a a margin on it in order to continue to stay in business, and they're not making a lot of it. So what do you have to do? Well, something has to give. Either it's the price, it's the quality – or right. it's, uh, you know, you don't get it, you know, or people have to not get paid as much to work at Zacuto and, you know, go to their families and say, hey, buddy, how would you like a $20,000 pay cut so this guy on the internet can save $5? Exactly. What? You know, that's, that's all. It's not going to happen. And I often groan about prices, but at the same time, you know, you have to sell a lot of stuff in order to bring it down to value. And sure, as an electronics engineer, I I know what goes into these products. I know the design process, just like the toilet you mentioned, any one-off product, the manufacturing and engineering time alone, just to do trace routing for the electronics, to do the component sourcing to do your pick and place for your board creation itself on top of the fact that you have to put that in some kind of frame that all takes design and engineering and many different levels of that because you have you know people that are materials specialists you have people that are electronic specialists you have people that are imaging sense specialists it goes on and on and on. and let's not forget about marketing by the way what's what's one of the biggest costs of hollywood movies marketing yeah you're right right so so all of this it's a it's a great rant uh i i love to do this periodically because hopefully the readers listeners understand that we're in a different world filmmaking is a different world you're looking at products that are basically niche cameras which is why there was such a difference in price between you know a, a dslr and by 10 years ago of renting a video camera, right? Or a film camera, because it's a niche product. They're, they can only make so many and they have to make money in order to feed their families. So the prices are much higher. DSLRs, when they came about, brought price revolution in a lot of these cameras. Thank goodness we've been able to see some of that. But let's not forget that people have to feed their families. They have to... Uh, absorb costs they have r&d costs that 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 never get considered by typical consumers so just be cool i know zacuto's expensive i know canon's expensive but i i always go back to what my dad said i'll be real quick you get what you pay for yeah 
You really do. I mean, there are times where you can save money. Uh, DJ's awesome at finding the, the great the values, but don't forget, like you can drive over this thing with a truck and it'll still freaking work. You get a, a knockoff brand from somebody else and it's history. So you get what you pay for. There was um, actually, I don't remember who it was. It's, it's someone I know, but the Zacuto has a very good warranty on their parts. And oh, yeah. uh, so if you ever are out shooting and something breaks and it damages your camera because uh, Zacuto's engineering failed to hold up whatever you were supporting, they'll, they'll literally have you send everything in and do like an investigation for you. And if they think it's their fault, they'll take care of it. Well, this rig, they had a, they had a red camera attached to it with some other stuff and the piece snapped off. And they're like, well, this is a Zacuto rig. You know, you guys, what did you do? Well, it turns out after they did some investigating that most of it was a Zacuto rig, except for this one section that somebody had gone on eBay and bought a knockoff version of a Zacuto mount and hooked it onto the rig. And that was what was finally the main support for the camera. And because of that, they used um, less less quality in their metals uh, and it was a pop metal type of material as opposed to a machined piece of aluminum or aircraft aluminum. Uh, I think 6061 is what Zacuto uses. Uh, so when they made it, it had imperfections in the casting. And, you know, all it took is a little bit of side loading stress and it popped. Well, they both, you hold both pieces up and they look identical because they're, you know, they're both red, they're both similar shaped, and they have the same look. But. One is made out of a machined piece and the other one is made out of a cast piece. And the quality between cast and machined is completely different. And I mean, it doesn't matter if you polish it up, you're polishing up a turd there. They <laughs> they dropped their camera on the ground and busted it. And Zacuto's like, hey, you should have used uh, our piece you know, here you cheaped out on the one little tiny section and that was the section that broke. And I'm not saying that's the case for all of these, you know, supporting small DSLRs and so on. It's not as big of a deal, but when you have a huge camera and a, a, a large budget and you put it on some cheap piece and it breaks, you know, whose fault is that? You, you cheaped out on like a, a key structural element of your rig. You get what you get, you know? <laughs> so true. So true. So, I mean, there are times where you can save money and there are times where you shouldn't just, just take that as, our future the money. one that gets me angry though is when i go online and i look at something like a ram mount uh, those guys sell a bunch of stuff for cars and so on and it's a basically it's a ball and socket system that allows for mounting in any kind of direction or angle or what have you and you're like that's great you know and you see the price it looks good and then you look at a film company that sells that exact same ball mount rebranded for three times the price. And you're like, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, I've seen this before somewhere. And then you go find the original source item. And in those cases where there's no value add and the company doesn't actually make the original product, it's like, well, maybe we should eliminate the middleman and just go right to the source. So yeah. But, but in those situations, you also got to understand the financial side of it is that that uh, camera manufacturer, whoever that person is, has to make some profit. And if they're buying them at retail or whatever, you know, they're three, t three times is probably a little crazy. But if if they're saving them as in inventory and don't have some kind of just in time thing, then their costs are much higher. We get into manufacturing and go down all those those. <laughs> Yeah, if you I'm don't want to wait like six weeks for it to come over on the slow boat from China and you want it exactly. tomorrow, uh, maybe yeah. the value add is getting it in two to three days instead of two to three weeks. Right. On that right. note, so oh, go yeah. ahead. No, that's fine. We're we're done with that. Story. Yeah, we've we've beat this one to the to the curb. Uh, uh, that was it for DSLR Film New Podcast episode ninety seven. Mitch, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at a place called, and I do want to notify everybody that starting, I think, because we haven't finalized this. This is this is sad because we're we're running into deadlines here. But starting, I believe Sunday, uh, and all through NAB week and the week after, so from like Sunday to the end of the month, we are going to do a, a giveaway 
on Planet 5D related to NAB and it's uh, three or four products. I'm not totally sure yet what they are from <laughs> Vitek. Uh, I think there's going to be a tripod. There's going to be a light of some kind. So there we got Vitek has like four or five. I'm sorry. They have like 10 companies that they are working together and the products haven't been finalized, but go to planet5d.com slash giveaway uh, next week and you'll be able to, to register for those. There'll be some great products that we're giving away. Uh, tune in to NAB Live, of course, through DSLR Film Noob website, and we will see you next week at NAB. Thanks, everybody, for listening, watching. And as always, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. Be sure to like, rate, and review. Oh, man, I forgot that one question that was in the list uh -oh. here. Oh, man. Um, th there was a question really quick before we get out of here that was asking about how to separate two channels of audio in your editor. If you have that problem, if you're a Premiere user, the way to do that is to fill left and fill right and copy those tracks. Or if you right-click and choose the audio selection, you can choose the mixing options for each of those tracks to separate out stereo audio tracks. I am sorry I missed that question. Now, on that note, we are going to get out of here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Podcast.